Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, coaches, and students who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have a forum where clinicians, students, and coaches network, discuss, and share ideas and resources related to sports med, rehab, and performance. To join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory, and for all upcoming clinical athlete seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website. This podcast can also be found on that website, YouTube, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio. I feel so official saying all those things now because we finally got the show on there. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. We are also joined by a very special guest. Adam Meekins, who's a physiotherapist, a strength and conditioning specialist, and an extended scope practitioner with an interest in the management of the shoulder and upper limb working in the NHS and private practice in Hertfordshire, England. Did I say that right, Adam? That city? It's close. That's close. It's close. Hertfordshire. Oh, there's no way. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for being on the show, man. You're, uh, no, thanks for inviting me. I'm, uh, I'm stoked to be here. Your, your uh, English accent will charm our six listeners. <laughs> Am I the first overseas uh, guest you've had on? Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's, I'm super excited to have a talk with you. And it so your website is the Sports Physio, and the URL is the Sports Physio for anyone who wants to look that up, which should be everyone. But I'm looking on your site on the homepage, and the sub caption on the homepage reads: "Simple, practical, honest advice." And I love that. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's perfect because of, for what we're going to talk about, because Adam is actually doing a webinar for clinical athlete on November 9th titled simplifying the shoulder. So I think it's safe to say that you're a prominent figure in the field. I've followed you for so for at least two years now because of your knowledge and content, but you're also very outspoken about what you feel we're getting right and getting wrong as a profession. So could you give our six listeners a little backstory about your background and what led to your interest in the shoulder and also what's led to your current level of healthy skepticism in the field. Uh, well, I think it's just that I'm a bit of a gobshite, if I'm being honest, Quinn. It's like I, uh, I do like the sound of my own voice. I do have strong opinions on various different topics, and uh, I'm not one to shy away from a, a disagreement and an argument and a debate. So I quite enjoy it. I quite thrive on it. So I think that's what's developed my uh, uh, sort of following, I think. Some people just like to see what Adam Meekins is going to rave and rant about next. Uh, but my background is is a little bit uh, topsy-turvy. I haven't always been a physiotherapist. I came into physiotherapy late, so I left school many, many years ago. Now, don't let these youthful looks fool you. Uh, but I, I left school and went into the military for a few years, uh, and then I came out of the military, and I went and did my first diploma in strength and conditioning first. So that was my, my background, and that's where I learned to pick heavy stuff up and put it down again and thoroughly enjoyed my time doing that, working in various different gyms and clubs, etc., uh, but I started to get more interested into human bodies and uh, particularly when they're breaking down. So as a strength coach, I'm sure, you know, you see them, they break down and I didn't really know how to proceed. I don't know whether it was safe to proceed. And that's what led my interest into physiotherapy. So back in 2000, I managed to blag my way onto an undergraduate physiotherapy program and just about clawed my way through it because I was a little bit disillusioned and totally surprised with the level of education that they were teaching physiotherapists. So I went in thinking they were going to be the exercise specialists and movement gurus and 
I was taught, well, let's just say some rather dubious things that are now coming out and being seen to be complete and utter bullshit, I suppose. But anyway, I managed to wind my neck in, graduate from physiotherapy, and then went into general practice, into the NHS system that we have in the UK here, uh, working in various different areas. Uh, I did uh, musculoskeletal, I did neurological, did geriatric, uh, cardiorespiratory. So I got a sort of all-rounded experience of physiotherapy in different fields. But musculoskeletal was the area that I really wanted to go into. So I started to specialize into that as I went through my career and climbed the greasy pole in the NHS, went into private practice as well. And then it was whilst I was in private practice, I started to develop some networks with some surgeons that were doing a lot of complex shoulder surgery in and around my area. And they were having difficulty finding a reliable physiotherapist to do their post-op rehab. And so they asked me whether I wanted to start specialising into upper limbs, into shoulders. And I said no straight away because it wasn't a, a keen area of interest for me originally. So I I was very much into lower limbs. I was obviously into the, the knees and the hips more. Um, but they managed to convince me and said, no, you know, go and start looking into shoulders a bit more, specialise in that area in the rehab. And that was probably around ooh, 2008, 2009, I guess. And I've never looked back since. So I sort of got developed into the to the shoulder rehab specialist role now, and I do thoroughly enjoy it. I do like the challenge of a of a shoulder complaint and a condition. So that's my sort of background. Oh, I love it. Just so I don't forget, I want to talk about the shoulder and all, and and dive into that. But your private practice is not through. I don't have a, a great working knowledge of the NHS, but your, the private practice is a separate deal, right? It's like people would not yeah. go through the NHS. Have you, has that been something that's been difficult for you to build up? Or is it just like if you do a good job, people tend to gravitate towards you and then you can build your network that way? Yeah, pretty, pretty much that's the, the, the basis of private practice in the UK is, is word of mouth referral. I mean, there is networking and things you have to do as well. Uh, but I'm a bit fortunate is that I, I work for a private health uh, hospital company, I suppose. So I now I don't have to worry about uh, getting clients, but it's the case that we are in a fortunate situation that we do get quite a big network of other providers already giving us the, the clients there. So I'm uh, I'm a little bit fortunate in that background now. But when I first started in private practice, yeah, it was very much about word of mouth and uh, and reputation. Because people, because I because I do the same thing over here, private practice. I don't go through the insurance companies, you know, in the U.S. But I have people from the UK will say that, oh, so you're so lucky, you know, we have the NHS over here. It just makes it so much more difficult. But, you know, maybe you're proof that it can it can work. You just got to grind a little bit. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. And so we'll kind of dive back into the clinical side of things. If the webinar titled is Simplifying the Shoulder and on your website, Simple Advice, that is like assuming to some extent that we tend to overcomplicate things in clinic. Would you, before I go any further, would you agree with that statement as just a general broad umbrella like we overcomplicate shit all the time? Absolutely, mate. Uh, physios overcomplicate everything. You know, we overcomplicate our advice, our education, our treatments, and of course, our rehab. We basically overcomplicate what we do, why we do it, and how we do it. Uh, and I think there's a number of reasons for that. I mean, a couple of things I think is just the trouble is we live in a society nowadays and work in a profession that just doesn't value or appreciate simplicity. No one likes to do or explain things simply anymore. It's not the way of the world. Everything has to be detailed and overcomplicated. And, you know, and I think there's that problem with our profession as well is that everybody's trying to appear smarter and cleverer than the next person and so you just have this snowballing effect of everybody trying to say something a little bit more different a little bit more complicated a little bit more in depth 
just to be a bit more unique and to stand out in this sort of noisy sort of world that we're living in now with social media. And I think that's why physios tend to overcomplicate and overconflate what they do. And they start to, you know, get themselves tied up in all sorts of knots and end up going down some wormholes. And I find it a little bit frustrating and it's a bit sad, really. I mean, I don't blame physios for doing it. It's just I think it's the situation and the society that we're in. But it is quite sad and embarrassing at times. And I think, you know, I'm trying as best as I can to say, like, come on, guys, you know, you don't have to go down this pathway. Let's stick to the simple stuff. But again, there are barriers with simplification and simplicity. I mean, the biggest one, I think, is physios, egos and elitism and their narcissism. They just don't like to do things simplistically. They don't like to explain things simplistically. They they have inadequacy issues and inferiority complexes, I think. They don't they don't value what they can do and, and their position in the healthcare system. I think a lot of physios find themselves or feel themselves subservient to surgeons and doctors and even other therapists. And again, that's another reason why I think they overcomplicate and over-exaggerate what they do and how they do it rather than just trying to be a bit more rational about things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, one of the perfect examples, and you probably, I hope I don't offend you with this, Quinn, is that I've noticed that one of the things that I see as a perfect example of physiotherapists overcomplicating things is the fact in the USA now, all physios call themselves doctors. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. what the fuck is all that about? Well, I was, uh, as you're talking, I'm thinking like that exact thing. So I think the doctor title is, and it's just the, the, the degree, I think as we're getting, because over here in the States, we have this thing that's changing the laws called direct access, meaning that people can actually come to see a physio straight away without having to go to a physician first to get a referral. And so the, the big thing is like, well, okay, so if you're going to be a first line defender, then you need to have a, a quote unquote doctoral education. But what exactly does that mean? Does that mean we're, di- you know, our, our physio diagnoses are, are nebulous at best. And so like, as you were, as you were talking, you mentioned doctors and surgeons and yeah, we, we feel kind of like subservient, but then we want to be, a, but we are doctors or we're, we're still like healthcare professionals. So then we want to be above others like strength and conditioning specialists. So it's like what you were saying, we have to try to make things up to, mm. to, to feel like we're on that level. And people ask me sometimes, they're like, what's it? Cause they see me practice quote unquote practice or quote unquote treat people. And it's basically just strength and conditioning. And then, so they ask me, yeah. what, what do you do that's different than a strength and conditioning coach? And I, I scratch my head. And I'm like, ah, nothing. Uh, I don't really have an answer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, I get that a lot, but I, I, I do think we, we are different. I think, you know, the, the education that we get gives us a better understanding, obviously our pathology, you know, strength and conditioning coaches don't get that. I didn't get that as my strength and conditioning training. Uh, and, and again, the biggest difference is pain. We work with people that are in pain, that are scared, that are confused, that have got other psychosocial factors going on. Strength and conditioning coaches most often don't. They have other psychosocial issues to work with, you know, their anxieties and their, their athletes, you know, other problems, but they don't have the same thing as it does uh, uh, as we do with physios with pain. So, yeah, although, although it's from the outside, it can look like we're doing exactly the same thing. We are doing things differently with nuances behind it with regards to our different populations. And do you think that skilled physical therapy, because I think that's the big thing. It's like, what do people, what is considered skilled treatment or skilled physical therapy? And I think that people don't consider uh, appropriately dosed loading or appropriately dosed training or behavioral modifications 
or patient education necessarily as, as quote unquote skilled physical therapy. Do you consider that? Cause I do. Do you consider that skilled physical therapy being able to, to educate somebody on beha- behavior modifications, graded exposure, that type of thing? Absolutely. Again, it's, it's the bit that everybody thinks is the easy bit. It's the simplistic bit and they, they just undervalue it. And I often see them doing it horrendously wrong because they don't value it as well. So they, they don't give it the credence and they don't give it the time that they should do. But yeah, I think, you know, these, and I hate the term that's often used with this sort of stuff, the soft skills, you know, your communication, your, your empathy skills, your motivational skills as a physiotherapist working with somebody that's in pain, that is pissed off, that is anxious, that that is worried, that is stressed, that is scared. Our ability to be able to instill confidence and reassure people that they're okay, they're not broken, and give them that proof through graded exposure and graded activity that they they can get better, there is light at the end of the tunnel, is a hugely skillful task. And it is something, as I say, that I don't think many physiotherapists do very well because they don't value it. They, their beliefs are is that they get people better with the hands-on techniques, with the sticking the needles in, and that's what's going to do it better. I'm like, that, that shit don't matter. What matters more is the stuff at the beginning. But that's the bit that I see most physios rushing through and just totally devaluing. You see that with, I'm assuming you see that with the shoulder as well. Do the physicians, do you get any pushback with some of the referrals that you get from the physicians in regards to the treatments that they believe that the patient should get um, or the diagnoses that the patient receives? Do you have to undo some of that stuff sometimes? Yeah, I, it's a fine line you have to tread here. Um, but yes, I do. I, I, I get a lot of dubious diagnoses sent down via consultants that I totally disagree with. Um, and again, and I think this is just due to more understanding and acceptance of uncertainty. And I find that our orthopedic colleagues are not that happy with uncertainty. They don't. They don't understand. I think what else could also be causing pain in this particular person and again the, the other factors around psychosocial interventions but also just different pathologies you know i still have surgeons that, that still think there's they can differentiate supraspinatus from infraspinatus in manual muscle testing and shit like that and so they, they they tell me you know this person clearly has a supraspinatus dysfunction because they can do this clinical test and they can tell and i'm like it, oh, it's not that simple it's not like that at all so having to go back and, and say to these guys and girls that actually i, I don't think that it's just this it could be I'm, I, what i try to do is is do that sort of bit more and believe it or not i can be tactful a little bit more tactful saying yeah that is a, that is a that is a plausible diagnosis and explanation but it could also be xyz could also be a b and c could be other factors as well so i try as best as i can but some are more receptive to it than others surgeons don't listen to anybody else Surgeons don't even listen to other surgeons, let alone physiotherapists. It's their mindset. Uh, and that's not having a go at them. That's just the way it is. But you, you ask any orthopedic surgeon that's quite rational, they'll, they'll agree with you. They'll say, yeah, fuck it. I won't listen to anybody else. You know, I, I, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but then again, I think some physios are like that as well. The example that you just gave, trying to differentiate between, and by the way, when I was in physical therapy school, I, I enjoyed my program and there was a lot of great things, but we still learned manual muscle testing in that way, this is five years ago still, teasing out each muscle as if we could, yeah. you know, and yeah. then manual muscle testing and also other things like, quote unquote, flexibility testing for each individual muscle as if the, as if the body works that way in, in these oh, it's crazy, you know, compartmentalized things. But the example that you just gave, 
oh, maybe it's a super spinatus sprain, or no, I think it's Terry's minor. Does it, in regards to examination, how much of that matters? Can we, can we simplify it by simply saying, you know what? It's a, your shoulder hurts when you do this. Let's, let's see what your triggers are, or do these individual tissues or local areas or diagnoses sometimes matter from a, from you, from a physio standpoint? I think sometimes is probably the word I'll use here. So I, I don't exclude structural pathology or diagnosis is completely, but I am aware that our ability to label something in the shoulder that hurts nowadays is notoriously difficult. And so I'm always suspicious of other diagnoses as well. Um, but I do know that the evidence tells us there are clusters of tests that can give us a higher sort of probability and certainty that there may be a pathology producing some provocation on certain movements on certain tests. So I will, you know, I, I will hedge my bets and say there is a probability here that it could be this particular pathology that's causing your pain but does it change my management absolutely not that that's that's the biggest thing is that i i find you know a lot of the time i can say i've got a hunch that it's x or y uh but i'm going to treat it exactly the same it doesn't i don't change my management very rarely just because of a structural pathology it tends to say be other things that guides my treatment program and that, that tends to be the individual uh, the direction that they've got pain and problems in and their attitude towards it and I don't want to give too much away from my webinar but I very much tend to you know just guide my treatment based on those key factors the structural pathology is there in the background but it's, it's very low down on the list of why I'm going to do or not do something well I, I think that's an important point because our thought process is we want to be these expert we're talking just physio land here we want to be these expert diagnosticians. And in my mind, by definition, a diagnosis should guide your treatment. So if we're giving you a specific diagnosis, your intervention should be different if the, if the diagnosis was different. And so if our special tests guide us towards a quote unquote rotator cuff pathology or a quote unquote labral pathology, well, do we have labral exercises or do we have, do we have a labral management plan versus our rotator cuff? management plan. I think that it is chopped up to, to seem that way, but ultimately do we, it's like what you said, what, what's a rotator cuff exercise, every shoulder exercise that you ever do. So absolutely. When, so when you talk about your clustering, your special tests, cause I agree with you, we got some data that, that shows that we can, we can put them together and the, and the validity and reliability is a little bit, or the validity is a little bit better. Um, what information does that give you? Is it just something that you put in your back pocket? Like if down the line, we're not getting the results that we want, now I can have a conversation with a, a referral source and, and that type of thing, or does it, ma does it matter to the patient also? Yeah, I, I think if, I, if we use the example of, say, an acromiocavicular joint, let's say we've got a grumbly acromiocavicular joint that's giving somebody some pain when they're pressing, doing something, uh, and we've done our cluster test and said, yeah, there's a high probability here that it's that the ACJ seems to be symptomatic. could be other things as well. We haven't excluded everything else, but it seems like this cluster of tests we've done is quite provocative for this individual. It sounds or it feels like it's an ACJ. Uh, so then we go through our rehabilitation and we do as best as we can do. We, we load them up we try and you know but maybe we unload them first we let the shit calm down and then we build it back up again uh we go through the rehabilitation we give it a sufficient 
period of time and it's still grumbling away and it's still not happy then that sort of diagnosis now then sort of comes to the forefront and i start to say okay maybe there's other options here because believe it or not physiotherapy don't cure everybody <laughs> so i i will then say okay well this is uh, we've given it a good shot it still doesn't seem like it's doing uh, what i'd expected to do at this stage i would probably say there are other options to the patient that they might want to consider and suggest uh, and again believe it or not sometimes i am a fan of a, a steroid shot you know again maybe that just helps calm shit down for a period of time i know we we've got to be sensible about it and rational about it but again i see a lot of kickback with steroid injections and people going over the top saying the worst thing since sliced bread i'm like no they're not they're, they can be useful adjuncts you know for some treatment for some patients just be sensible about it and that goes with surgery as well and again you know that again if there is still a grumbly acj in there you know and the scans are showing it's lighting up like a christmas tree uh, and then a small little you know distal excision that can work wonders i've had patients come back absolutely fantastically after that so again i think we demonize our orthopedic colleagues a lot especially on social media and think physio is the all end and be all and it, it needs to be given a good shot it needs to be used as a first line treatment i agree with that we need to be promoting that more but it doesn't get everybody better and that's when other interventions are, are useful for us to be thinking about and so that's where i think structural pathology diagnoses can be helpful so you kind of bank. I, I love that, by the way. And I actually uh, just yesterday had a conversation with a, a patient about the possibility of getting an injection to kind of, like you said, and to quote Greg Lehman, calm shit down, build shit back up. And actually, like after the conversation, I felt a little dirty, like, ah, no, like, you know what I mean? Like the Internet's going to blast me if they knew that I just had this conversation with somebody. But I, I completely agree with you. So and just to summarize, what I think you're saying is like you the structural pathology, you at least determined that. You just get the big picture and, and you're banking that yeah. information uh, and then you pull it out if you need to. Do you also bring it up like to the to the patient? Let's say it's AC. You you think maybe a probability of AC joint pathology. You have the conversation with the patient, but then you make sure that you that you say it doesn't actually matter as far as what we're going to do. But if we had to pin it down to a specific area, I think this is what it is. Or do you not even tell the patient? that in it, particular does it depend yeah yeah it, it depends i think you know if the patient asks for a diagnosis you know i, I think uh, my first question when a patient says what do you think is going on here? i say well what why do you need to know you know and if a patient tells me that you know i just i just i'm interested you know what what's your what's your thoughts of what's going on here and then again i say well why do you still want to know well i went and see, saw this other guy down the road and he told me that it was this this thing that was going on and i said ah so you've already got another diagnosis from somebody else so then it starts having to be a little bit careful because again i know sometimes giving other patients different a diagnosis starts to get quite confusing for them and that's when they can start mistrusting me or mistrusting somebody else and end up going down a very sort of dark hole and they go and get a third opinion and then a fourth opinion so i i i, I will always say you know to a patient you know if you want a diagnosis why do you want the diagnosis i try to explain to them that you know my management doesn't need it i've ruled out anything serious or sinister um but if you really want to know i've got a suspicion that it is this and then you know try to keep the education you know realistic simplistic and uh, rational and and hopeful as well what do you think about this because i've had this exact conversation with people and the the rebuttal on the other side is it's unethical and we're going down this road right now it's unethical if we talk about differential diagnosis 
it's unethical to withhold the differential diagnosis from the patient. And the, the conversation, so that was my face. The conversation was actually, <laughs> that I remember specifically, was about the, it wasn't about the shoulders, about the lumbar spine, and it was about disc pathology. And it was in it, a patient, the, the example was a patient who's not presenting with ridiculous symptoms, no red flag symptoms whatsoever, and is just localized pain, flexion sensitive, but just localized. To the, yeah. and my thing was like, you know what my diagnosis is? Back pain. F f Lays, back yeah. pain with, yeah. you know, and, but the pushback was it's unethical to, to not tell them that it could potentially be spinal pathology or something like that. And we may need to do down the road, do an MRI, something like that. In, in, doc in real doctor land, uh, probably offend some of my colleagues, real, you know, physician land, it would be like more sinister medical diagnoses that would, that you would need to tease out like that. That's kind of what they're referring to. Do you see us in physio land when we're talking about the shoulder, so, you know, or the knee being on that level, needing to tease out these diagnoses? No, I, I think we need to be, uh, say, looking for the serious sinister stuff. That's the main thing. So if there was a radiculopathy, there's something in there with neural compromise, then then clearly you're going to have to explain that and give that diagnosis. Uh, and likewise, if there are any red flags as well, you're going to have to clearly give that diagnosis that there could be something else going on here. But for everything else where there isn't that clear sinister serious pathology and it's this mushy Mess, mess of symptoms and, and possible suspects, then I'm with you. I will call this a, 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 a painful area, a hot spot, a, uh, an, a, a, an anatomical problem, you know, with regards to the back pain or shoulder pain or knee pain. Yeah, but I wouldn't give it a label as anything that's structural, no. Do you think part of the issue is the diagnoses that we have at our disposal themselves that are just very... They're, they're basically just diagnoses of exclusion, like su subacromial impingement syndrome or impingement syndrome, or I yeah. mean, even, even tendinopathy is diagnosed without imaging confirmation. And it's just based yeah. on, on, you know, the history of the symptoms. So you think that, do you think that's an issue is the fact that our diagnoses are, are nebulous? Absolutely. I think it's a big issue. Uh, and again, I think it's, it's physiotherapists loving to rush down and give things diagnosis and labels. Physios like to categorize and box things, working on algorithms, procedures and formulas. It's just their, it's their training. It's their background. It's their mindset. You know, give them that little bit of ambiguity and that little bit of uncertainty. Their brains just go, they're like, they're like rabbits stuck in a headlight. They're like, what do I do now? How do I proceed? I haven't found A, so what? I can't do B. Surely I'm like, no, you can. <laughs> you, can you can still treat people. You can still do what you've always been doing. you just got to not always have a label. You don't always need to put a diagnosis onto things. But, yeah, you know, the classic one I see, rotator cuff tendinopathy as well. I hear that so much. Oh, you got the diagnosed rotator cuff tendinopathy. Well, oh, how do you know? Oh, they've got pain on external rotation. That doesn't mean it's rotator cuff tendinopathy. Well, you know, <laughs> even even if you have a scan and it shows rotator cuff tendinopathy, we know you can see tendinopathy changes in the rotator cuff on asymptomatic individuals. So you still don't know. It's uh, it's the, the diagnosis. I mean, it is frustrating and it is annoying. I think when physios hear me talk and I explain things like this, and I always say to them, look, if it gives you any consolation. I am a big hot mess of uncertainty. I am this big mixture of contradiction. You know, I am on a daily basis going, oh, it could be this, it could be that. Inside, I'm in turmoil. But on the outside, I don't show it. You know, I, I am with patients. I am 
confidently uncertain. I think that's the other thing with uncertainty. When you when you're trying to give a diagnosis to somebody that you're not 100% certain about, you have to give it confidently because patients don't respond to somebody that's going, mm-hmm, could be the, mm-hmm, they're not going to buy into you. They're not going to trust you. So I think again, it's how you do it, and that's the skill of a physiotherapist as well, being able to know the evidence base well enough and to be confident in it well enough to be able to explain this to a patient confidently, but still uncertainly. And see if you agree with this. Sometimes I actually think that simplifying things or or pulling back from specific uh, labels or specific tissues is actually a breath of fresh air for the patient themselves. So I'll try to say, you know, for the shoulder specifically, I say, you know, I'll, I even have a little app, anatomy app that like cuts things and like does all this. It's like, see all these ligaments around your shoulder? Could be any of that. And then I start adding muscles and it's like, there's stuff, so it could be a combination. Like, let's just say all of these tissues are pissed off. I don't, we don't know. It doesn't matter, but this is, this is the area. And they say, okay, I mean, that makes sense. We don't, it doesn't really matter if it, so if, when they start to see that it's just, oh, big picture, I, I think that that helps things along as well. They're actually, refre- yeah, they're actually refreshed by that. Absolutely. And again, it goes with those patients that have had multiple different diagnoses and they're confused now and they're a little bit uncertain. They don't know. They don't know how to proceed. They're like, well, it could be my slap because that guy told me it was a slap lesion. And now this other guy's told me it's a rotator cuff problem. And I've been also told my bursa needs an injection as well. And then they come to see me and I say, well, technically all of them could be right. Well, they all could be wrong, but it doesn't matter. You know, this is this is my plan. You know, I've excluded anything serious and sinister. What we're going to do now is give it a shot at doing these things, and we'll see how it goes. And I've got a high probability and a high suspicion that you won't need any further interventions, just giving it some time and some loading, and we'll see how it goes. And there's evidence to prove that patients respond to that as well. I'm trying to remember the name of the paper because I use it on my course. Um it's got a German sounding name, Schellenhut or Schellenhut, 2008. We should abandon structural diagnosis for subacromial shoulder pain. Mm. Uh, and it, it was, it's an awesome read. And it says basically this, that patients are in terminological chaos. I love that phrase. It always sticks in my mind that patients, when they get multiple diagnoses, end up in terminological chaos. Uh, and I think you're right. It's reassuring when somebody like you and me says around that, you know, it could be this, it could be that. They've got all these other things in there. Doesn't matter. Nothing there serious for us to worry about. This is what we're going to do. Here's the plan. That's what the patient wants. They want a plan. They want to know what to do. They want the action. They just don't want the diagnosis. Uh, Again, let's give them that. Let's give them the plan. Let's see how it goes. You know, and the other thing is don't rush it. You know, a lot of the times, especially with shoulder pain, I think, you know, when something doesn't start to respond in two or three weeks, patients and physios start to panic. I'm like, just hold your nerve. Don't panic. You know, most of these things, again, the evidence in my experience says give it a minimum of three months, minimum, sometimes even longer. We've just done a, a, a paper, me, Chris Littlewood, and a few other authors, we got together, cool. and we just come up with a yeah, consensus of what us, quote, unquote, expert shoulders, using the evidence base as well, um, stipulate for subacromial shoulder pain. And again, you know, lots of things have come out with lots of uncertainty, but a couple of the things that come out is just we don't give things long enough. We we panic, we, we intervene, we over-treat because things are just not given time to respond to the physical therapy, to the exercise. When's that paper coming out? I want that. 
Uh, don't be too uh, hopeful because there's lots of uncertainty in it. One thing it tells us we've got shitloads more work to be doing for subacromial shoulder pain is just that we've got very little in the terms of, you know, what's the best exercise, what's the best frequency, what's the best parameters. It's very ambiguous. But I think it's good because it, it just allows everybody to chill out, gives everybody this sort of scope to say, look, there's not one specific protocol that's better than the other. What we've got is this big sort of open uh, field of different selections of exercises, isometric, concentric, eccentric, different load variations, different rep ranges, different sets. All we've got is we know it's going to take about three to six months to sh- start to show effect. You need to do it about three times a week. And it has to be at sufficient intensity. And again, it's a bit ambiguous, but we're looking at sufficient intensity for it to create, obviously, physiological or psychological adaptations. And that's about it. Those are my, those should be people's favorite reads. I shouldn't say that should, but should speak for other people, but that, that should help us. I, I mean, there's nothing that, that gives me more reassurance than knowing that we actually don't know anything. Because then I don't have to worry about all the extracurricular things that I'm seeing everywhere. And like, okay, I was like, I'm, I'm not missing the boat by taking that approach. That's, that's, that's how I feel when I read papers like that. And I think they, they don't get the attention because they're not, because of the uncertainty, I think, but that's a misconception. That's, that's the benefit of, of, of reads like that. And you made a good point. People want diagnoses or they don't, I'm sorry, flip that. People ultimately want the plan and they want the prognosis. I feel that sometimes we as practitioners think that the patient wants a diagnosis because we want to figure out a diagnosis because that's a, that's a me thing. You know, I'm the doctor. I want to figure out what's wrong. The patient must also want to know exactly the, but not really. They're coming in there to know when they can do the thing that they want to do again. Absolutely. Uh, one of my idols in physiotherapy, God rest his soul, is no longer with us now. Louis Gifford famously said it, you know, patients want to know five things, you know, they want to know why they hurt, but you can be ambiguous with that and be reassuring with that there's nothing serious or sinister, because that's point number two. Is it serious? Often at times it's not. How long is it going to take? What can I do about it? And how much is it going to cost me? Because <laughs> they're the things that play on patients' minds. So again, they're the things. Like Louis' golden five, as I call it. I try to make sure I every sort of uh, initial appointment and follow-up appointment, I'm going through those key points with a patient and making sure they're aware of them. The other thing that you said that I think is a key point is the expectation of the process of rehab. Even in an acute setting, I, when you said that, like after a couple of weeks, people start to get antsy. Even the clinician starts to panic a little bit because it, I mean, they know, you know, there's going to be some pushback, but do you feel that that if, if expectations are set right off the bat, the patient knows exactly what the minimum that, cause none of us know how long this is going to take. Well, how long is it going to take? Well, I don't actually know, but I think that at minimum you commit to this amount of time. Like you said, three months, like have in your brain three months minimum. Then after two weeks, if nothing has changed and the patient's like, well, you know, what's going on? You can say, hey, remember first day you signed off on on the fact that this is going to be a process. Do you feel like expectations right off the bat are, are important? Absolutely. I think it's key. You know? And again, I think physios often do a bad job with that. And I think, again, it's because of their training in the background. Everybody wants the quick fix. You know, and that's why I, I blame manual therapy for so much shit, because the pressure is on 
removing the pain immediately within session. 20 to 30 minutes, make my pain feel better. I'm like, no, why? It ain't, if it does remove your pain, it's not the answer. It's only the short fix for a short, very short period of time. So, again, I, I am a, a big believer of explaining to patients that, you know, the, most of these things that we see in the musculoskeletal world um, are, are not quick fix or not resolvable within a couple of weeks. Some do, but most of them don't. they just got to stick the path. They've got to accept it, and they've got to start getting on board with it from day one. So I think, again, you know, setting those expectations with the patient and that first initial assessment is absolutely fundamental and key. And a lot of patients I know, and I, I've got this as well, a lot of them will get antsy about it. They'll get annoyed about it. They'll get pissed off about it. Uh, and they, they don't believe me. And they'll say, oh, but so-and-so said, oh, I had so-and-so. And say, well, you know, I'm not saying it's definite set in stone, but, you know, from my evaluation of what's going on here, my experience of what's happened with thousands of other patients that I've seen in the past, this is my expectation of what will be happening for you. Um, and, and again, it's something that I think, you know, some patients will tolerate, other patients won't, and they'll go and see somebody else, and that's their choice at the end of the day. But I am very much, like you say, a believer of just making sure the patient is aware of the expectations in the first session. I'm going to bring it up again because you brought it up first. Do you feel that there is a place for manual therapy in regards? <laughs> we'll just keep it in the sh at the shoulder. Uh, simply put, no. Uh, I, I, I have, I've abandoned manual therapies. You may have read, if you read some of my blogs, I've abandoned it completely as a physiotherapist. Um, I am not going to say everybody has to abandon it. I mean, everybody thinks I'm on a mission to get it eradicated completely. Uh, I think I am missing interpreted on my position on manual therapy it is just that i have been disillusioned with it over the years i've felt i've wasted a lot of time money and brain power on something that's just not important um so that's my my position so i think physiotherapists are better than manual therapy as well i think your skills your education your training it needs to be better used elsewhere other than giving massages and poking a few spines and joints now that's not to say it doesn't do anything Again, this is the misposition I get. A lot of people think, oh, Adam says that manual therapy doesn't. Here's a paper, here's a systematic review. I know it does something. But then again, when you're dealing with pain, shitloads of stuff does something. You know? I throw back a paper at people whenever they give me a shitty little case report on manual therapy doing something. I th often throw back a paper that shows swearing improves tolerance to painful stimuluses with a much bigger effect size than any fucking manual therapy does. So if you're going to start playing that game of here's a case report or here's a little study that shows, you know, this, I'll go, well, there's one there that shows just by swearing, letting out a few F-bombs when you're in pain improves, improves your tolerance to pain. So anything can help with pain for the short term. That's exactly what manual therapy does. If it wants to be used or a patient's got an expectation that they want it, that's fine. Um, I think they're entitled to have it, you know, pain alleviation is something that's a, that's a right i think that people should be entitled to have i think people rush for it too quick i think a lot of people have lost tolerances to painful things that just hurt and they need to learn to endure and tolerate some painful stimulus and be a bit more resilient behind it but if they want manual therapy they want a massage to help their pain i think they get they're entitled to it but i don't think a physiotherapist should be applying it at a premium they can go and get it from a masseuse they can go and get it from a beauty parlor they can go and get it from someone at half the cost and probably get twice as long for it and probably feel a shitload better than a physiotherapist applying it with a nice room with a bit of whale music and a candle light going on in the background that's how manual therapy 
therapy needs to be used. I won't, and I won't beat this horse because people, I, I don't perform manual therapy currently either in my practice for many of the same reasons that, that you. So there's nobody. I knew I liked you. There's not a third. Yeah. And there's not a third person on the show to kind of like give the other side. So I don't want to just make this a manual therapy bashing deal, but I, I think it was on one of your blogs where you said the most skilled manual therapy I ever got was from my, uh, from my wife or my girlfriend or like that's, that's like with no training at all. It's just that. Yeah. yeah. And, and what you mentioned there is exactly what I say. They'll, people will ask me, well, what do you think about massage? And I think, well, I think it will relax the hell out of you. I, I think a nice quiet room, a dark room, nice music, somebody's, somebody cares. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that therapeutic yeah. touch, like there's something, there's something to that, but for our Absolutely. purposes, now I say that, yeah, and I'll say, but for our purposes, I, I think there are things that we can do that are, that are better for our time that will address more of our long-term goals that will actually get some change, you know, physiologically, like we go through that, but I, I do think it's important to not just flip people's worlds upside down or create like this line in the sand, because I think you lose people sometimes with that. Yeah, I am guilty of that. I am guilty of that. I put that. I think sometimes my position is, is, is the strong one and it does get misrepresented, but I'm probably to blame a little bit for that as well. And the other thing that often gets thrown at me is that I, I'm saying that physios shouldn't touch their patients. And that's absolute bullshit because I am a big believer of using palpation and touch in assessing and examining patients. And it means a lot to patients. The amount of patients that come to see me and say, well, the last guy didn't even ask me to undress, didn't even look at the bloody area. So I know it matters a lot to patients. So I like to examine thoroughly an area. When I first met a patient, I like to go through palpation. All I know is that reliability of palpation means fuck all. You know, somebody goes, well, it's this spot here. Press it here. That's where I feel. And then I do. And they go, oh, yeah, that's the spot. You've got the spot. What is that? And I'm like, "Ah, that's a good question. All I can tell you, it's nothing serious. There's nothing hanging off, all right? There's nothing out of place. There's no deformity. There's no heat. There's no swelling. There's no discharge coming from it. I'm, I'm happy that it's just a painful spot. Well, what is that painful spot? Well, that's, again, and then we go through the explanations that pain is, you know, down to lots of factors. And it allows you to have that little window of education, I think, when you are using palpation and you do find a spot for them. What I find going wrong, though, again, is physiotherapists being taught that they touch things and they can feel these knots and these lumps and they start to pathologize them when they're perfectly normal. You know, the, the reason for doing palpation is to look for something that makes you go, oh, my fucking God, what's that? You know, something that you go, that looks grossly swollen. I can feel heat coming off that's like a furnace or that's sticking out where it shouldn't be sticking out. You know, when it comes to this subtle stuff, that's where it all starts to unravel. That's where palpation all starts to go downhill and starts to be more nocebic and not beneficial. So, you know, although I don't use manual therapy, I palpate patients. I touch and I examine them. And I'll also use my hands to facilitate movement as well in a session, in follow-up sessions as well. So, you know, people will say, well, you're applying an MWM. I'm like, it's not fucking MWM. There's no specificity behind it. I'm not particularly pushing in any direction. If anything, I'm using it as an encouragement. You know, I'm just saying, come on, this is the direction I want you to go. Come follow me. Let let me get the hands. Let me guide you there. And that's normally for these pain avoiders, you know, the people that are backing away that just need that little bit of, you know, graded exposure where you have to be a little bit more robust and say, look, come on, let me guide you through it. Let me take you through it. So hands on touching patients is important. It's just not fucking formalized manual therapy. That's all it's not. For the six listeners that don't know what MWM, mobil, uh, mobilization with movement, it's like a specific technique. You're just kind of 
guiding the movement and applying pressures and different vectors while the patient moves. But it's a specific, it's like courses are taught MWM. This is like a. I went on, I went, yeah, I think I spent about two weeks of my life learning all the different MWMs and directions and nags and snags and all that sort of stuff. So it was a combined nags, snags and MWMs course. And I just want my money back. (laughs) (laughs) And, And so it sounds like your exam, your exam is not unlike what a typical exam would be you're checking range of motion you're you're palpating certain areas it's more of the narrative behind what you're finding potentially that's maybe a little bit different yep and recognizing uncertainty about it and and explaining that and passing that over to the patient i think that's huge that's the bit that i think physio doesn't do too well it finds something and the patient goes oh what was that and then it starts to pathologize it and it starts to actually make it abnormal rather than reassuring people well we're not quite sure but there's nothing there abnormal there's nothing there majorly problematic it's, it's just a hot spot it is just a sensitive area people don't like talking in those terms because it's too simplistic for them and they think that's dumbing down doing things simplistically isn't dumbing down you know simple doesn't mean obvious simple doesn't mean dumb, dumbing down and simple certainly doesn't mean easy they're the sort of common misconceptions around simplicity that i get on my courses and on the webinar i'm going to try and prove that actually that, that's a lot harder to do this it, you know trying to give patients the reassurance that it isn't something serious that it isn't a pathology and it is a normality it, it's challenging it's hard the easy stuff is to say to a patient oh it's a trigger knot or a trigger point you know just if we stick a needle in it that will sort it right out for you that's definitely what it is that's the easy bit <laughs> trying to turn around to a patient and say well it could be this could be that he's not quite sure but you know what we got to do is get you going and get, start moving on for the long-term picture get this sort of situation under control not keep looking at the sort of the short-term modification of your pain look at the long-term picture that's the hard bit i also like what you what you're saying about the power of of touch but you use it simply use it in a in a slightly different way. So it's like back to your conversation about manual therapy. It does something. There is an effect. We cannot yet define the effect and it's very non-specific as at least how we can try to measure it now. But it sounds like what you're saying is you can get that same non-specific effect, which is essentially just the person being reassured, being reassured that there's an expert who is working with them currently and who cares and being touched by that expert just gives them that feeling that they're safe and that things are going to be okay. And it's, so it sounds like what you're saying is that you can get that simply by like examining them, but being, but you know, having your hands on them or even going through exercises and cueing them tactfully with your hands potentially. So, you know, that could be quote unquote manual therapy while they're doing an exercise and you're just there. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, kind of. I just, I just wouldn't call it manual therapy because it's not, you know, yeah, but yeah, you're right. It is, it is, it's reassuring touch. It's facilitation. It's encouragement. It's examination. It's just not formalized manual therapy. You don't need to go on a course to know how to do it. I think that's the key factor where you need to learn how to interact and communicate and examine patients, but you don't need to go on a specific course to know exactly which bot to press and which way to, to do it and which direction to poke and prod it so that's what manual therapy tells us you know that's what manual therapy tries to be specific and it isn't so we should just go to we should just go to like we need people skills we need to learn how yeah. to listen 
Yeah, those, those again, like I said, those things that often get labelled soft skills, they're not fucking soft skills, they're essential skills, and sometimes they're really challenging skills, and sometimes they're skills that need a lot of work on, that a lot of physios don't get, they don't they don't realise that actually, the way you communicate is pretty shit, <laughs> you know, you're, you're not actually reassuring people, you're, without knowing about it, you're, you're actually probably harming this person, and that's the other thing I sometimes get blown up about, people think that, you know, physiotherapy, are they, there's no harm with physio therapy you keep saying it's harmful uh but where's your evidence adam you've got no evidence to show that physio is harmful it's because it's there's there's no direct harm it's indirect it's implicit it's latent you know it's these things these little seeds that are planted in patients brains that just start to grow and then they manifest and then a year on down the line it's this great big ugly fear and nocebic and avoidance type issue now just because of something somebody said a year ago in a physiotherapy assessment you know patients come in to see us with one or two problems and 99 percent of the time a patient will leave a physiotherapist with 63 other problems, a foam roller, a bit of tape, and some fucking 12 sessions for acupuncture needles as well on top of it, and a referral perhaps to a podiatrist for some insoles as well. And it's just like, what the fuck are we doing? We're going the wrong way. We are, we are not, we're supposed to be helping and reassuring patients, and we end up often the time doing the exact fucking opposite. I'm ranting now. No, it's good. I, it's like <laughs> we... Uh... It, it, we spend so much time being trained to look for pathology. We, we are, our perception is skewed. Now everybody has a pathology. We're looking for problems. People are made of glass. Yeah. As opposed to like, it actually should be the opposite. We're actually a lot more robust than we think we are. Um, and you know, who knows what factors have led to this perception of chronic pain, but it's going to, I think these are important points to be made as far as. As far as loading or even just objectively testing something like strength, do you use any type of objective, you know, talk manual muscle testing, I'm assuming I know your stance on that, but do you even use that as a way to elicit symptoms as just a quick screen push and press and, hey, hold here, just to get an idea yep. of what their tolerance is? Yeah. Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, again, I just know it's not specific to any individual muscles. You know, I, I think the best way is I manual muscle test movement, not muscles. So I will uh, manual test an abduction movement. I'll manual test an external rotation movement. I'll manual test a forward flexion movement. You know, so I, I manually muscle, I manually test movement, not muscles. Uh, but I, I also, you know, if I want a bit more objective data, I, I'm not averse to a handheld dynamometer. Uh, I think sometimes getting a bit more objective data is good for some of these tests for some patients that they can buy into it more when they can actually see some objective deficits from one side to the other. You know, a lot of people will say, you know, well, that doesn't relate to anything. And I'm like, yeah, I know that. But some patients, you know, when they can see one shoulder is 25% off compared to the other one, it motivates them. And then they come back next week, say, right, I'll do that test again and see if I'm a bit stronger. I'm like, yeah, good. You know, and they're buying into it. They're getting their, they're getting their sort of feeling that they want to do something active about it. Uh, so I do, I do, yeah, use handheld dynamometry quite a bit in uh, clinic as well. So for any of the students listening, MMT, manual muscle test, just change it. Manual movement test. You don't even have to change the acronym. Boom. This is boom. Yeah, you're correct. Yeah. And so what you're saying is like the, with the dynamometer, I, objectifying because some patients like that. It creates buy-in. There's some competitive nature there. If we're dealing with athletes, like give them something to look forward to and like to change. Absolutely. And yeah. the, the rebuttal would be, okay, Adam, well, show me the perspective data that that matters. You know, what's the cutoff? You're, you're, you're scoring yeah. something. You're making somebody reliant on a number. I, I feel like. 
the, I, the same arguments could be made for other things like manual therapy changes or range of motion. But I, I find that at least we're tracking force production. Like at least we're tracking something that could be a, a, an attribute that's useful. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Rather than something, and, and, and again, there's a little bit more objectivity behind it than just a visual analog score or something along those lines. So yeah, I think, yeah, I get his, uh, his complaints thrown at me as well. So why do you use a handheld dynamometer and give figures like that when you're not specific about anything else? Well, so because it's useful for some patients to get them to buy in. They, it gives them a goal. It motivates them. And it is interesting to see progress through that three month process. You can see somebody, you know, with a 50% deficit completely eliminate it in time with loading and exercise. The question is, is how have they done that? Is it the exercises that's increased the strength or is it just they've reduced pain and therefore they can generate more strength because they're not in pain? I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, I've heard Eric Mara say a similar thing about strength, like, well, how strong, so being strong is a protective mechanism or a protective shield from pain. Not necessarily, like, there's no cutoff, like how strong is strong enough? I know. Uh, yeah. Here at Hitter Our Gym, we I've I've worked with people who can squat 900 pounds and have hip pain. So it's like how strong is strong enough? So it's like but the pro, but for somebody general population there seems to be something to the process of strength training. It, the process of being more resilient to stress. Yeah. It seems like there's something there. For you as far as exercises and I know that there's not going to be a specific answer here, but do you have some exercises for the shoulder that you like that you tend to go to more than others as far as like just a progression like a general yeah uh, i i do again i don't want to give too much away for the webinar but yeah i i, I do have you know we all got favorite exercises let's be honest you know <laughs> there's so many out there you know and every time i go on instagram you see somebody else doing some weird and wonderful one and you're like oh, i'm not quite sure about that one so again I, I tend to keep my exercises simple like i do with my interventions on anything else but uh, there are some favorite ones and, and again which one i'll choose is dependent on the patient in front of me so most patients with shoulder pain have a problem lifting their arm up so it's normally a, a lifting exercise i just grade their exposure into it uh, depending on their attitude towards pain uh, so the lateral raise is a common one or a forward raise is a is a common movement that the arm wants to do and i just tend to expose their arm into those areas as they can tolerate it so those are my favorite ones so yeah i tend to classify you know shoulder exercises into lifting pushing pulling pressing carrying type movements and that that's that, that that's how i choose my exercise selection so i don't i don't go that that's an external rotator strengthener that's a anterior deltoid exercise and it's like no it's a push it's a pull it's a carry it's a lift it's a press well, let's take the like the lateral raise or a front raise as an example do you allow people to just kind of self-select the angle like are you playing around with oh retract your shoulder blade no protract internally external rotator. you just say you know let's just find somewhere in the middle find your comfortable position and we'll go from there what's your stance again it's down to the patient's attitude towards their problem and their movement um so if again i don't often group patients or classify them into certain groups but if i've got a patient that's a pain avoider or a movement avoider I am pushing them towards the direction they don't want to go. I am, I'm being, you know, a little bit robust. I'm encouraging them to go into some pain, into some discomfort, 
based on what they've told me in the history and the exam that I can see where their problem lies. So if there is somebody that is backing away that says, I can't reach my arm out the car window to get it out because it hurts all the time, so I don't do it. I now use my other arm and I've stopped you lifting this arm out. I'm exposing that arm into the direction that they don't want to go, that they've told me is sore or painful or I've seen it in the exam that they're backing away from it. If I've got a movement uh, coper or a pain coper who tends to be the opposite, these are the guys and the girls that have said, yeah, it hurts when I put my arm out of the car window, but I'm still fucking doing it. In fact, I went down the gym yesterday and I did 20 reps in lateral raises as well. Then I do the exact opposite. I back them away. I, I'll load them up in normally the opposite direction. So if they're a lifter, they're getting pain on lifting, then I'll give them some pulling. So I'll give them a, a face pull or something along those lines because that doesn't tend to be provocative. And I'll load that shoulder like that for a period of time and then load them back into their painful movement. Hopefully, which won't be painful anymore. Hopefully. So that's the distinction between kind of a coper and, and someone who just goes, who constantly sent, resensitizes what they got going on. Is yeah. there also a differentiation between something that's more of a chronic nature versus something that's an acute case versus if you're going to have them go into pain or not? No, not really. I, I don't tend to. Time is a factor, yeah, for some of their conditions, but I, I, it's more their, their attitude and their behavior towards their pain and their problems is what guides me as to choosing uh, a movement or an exercise. So if I see somebody that's really fearful, backing away, avoiding, reluctant, scared, timid, acting like a bit of a pussy, they're, they're, the, ones <laughs> they're the ones that I am going, now, come on, let's get this going. Let's show you it's safe. It's no problems there. It needs to get going. It needs to get tolerant to these movements. Let's get you into these areas. I'm being sensible about it. I'm not, I'm not going gung-ho, but I'm grading their exposure into it. But, yeah, for the other guys and the girls that are constantly aggravating it, they're carrying on doing their tasks, I deload them. I unload them from that painful position and load them up in another direction. If it's somebody who you tend to go into pain with a little bit more, do you have guidelines for them like when they're doing it at home? Like the tendinopathy land, they would say, well, you know, the symptoms, yeah. any increase in symptoms shouldn't last more than 24 hours. Do you give people any type of, of guidelines like that or does it just kind of depend on the case? Yeah, it depends on the case again. You know, I, I don't use visual analog scales much anymore nowadays. So I tell people, you know, do as much as you feel you're able to, you know, push it, you know, go if they're an avoider, I'll say, push it, come on, challenge it. And, and normally it's self-limiting, you know, most people will push it up to their limit and then they back down. Uh, and they're the ones that I have to then say, no, you need to push it a bit more. Um, but be sensible. <laughs> so there is a ceiling on it, but I won't put any sort of uh, number or figure onto it as well. No. For the, I didn't want to forget when you mentioned that you did a paper with Chris Littlewood, one of his papers just jumped into my head. Cause I yep. cited a lot. It's a, and I've got it in front of me. So when I read the title, don't be impressed. It's not off the top of my head, but I cited <laughs> it's, it's from 2016. It was a, the title was a self-managed single exercise program versus usual physiotherapy treatment for rotator cuff tendinopathy. And it was a, yeah. it was a RTC or RCT. And essentially the reason I like it is because the, the treatment group had a single exercise, which was just a banded, uh, I, I can't say lateral raise or front raise because that was the whole point. They, they allowed the, athlete or a person to self-select the angle versus just going straight plane. You no, know, it has to be flexion. Okay. Now we'll do our abduction exercise. Now we'll do our scaffolding. Yeah. So they, and actually from session to session, they were like, you just find, you find where you can do the exercise where it's challenging, where, you know, where there's no apprehension or like 
the pain is not to a point where you can't perform the movement, but just you, you do you essentially. And, and it worked, it would, it worked just as well. So that, that was to me, I use that a lot to be like, you know, it doesn't have to be this specific angle or specific vector. Cause that's not how things work anyway. Um, just not, yeah, general loading. And it's, it's what it sounds like you're talking about is like identify the activities and movements that are giving you problems, figure out how to dose down enough to where you can work into those things. Uh, it, yeah. Simple, man. Yeah. It's simple. Yeah. Crazy. It's simple, man. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Simple, but challenging. Yeah. Right. And again, as long as it sounds like to me, as long as expectations are set, the, the person is okay with that. But if they don't know that they're going to have to do work, and it's going to be a process, then there's an issue. Yeah. And, and let's be honest, there are some patients that don't want to do the work as well. So they're, they're, they're the ones that, you know, you're, you're probably not going to be too successful with. And again, I think that's important to know at the beginning, at the outset. You know, I always like to summarize my first assessment with my history taken as asking the patients, you know, what do you expect needs to be done here? What do you think needs to be done? What do you think is going on and what do you want to be done? And, you know, I get the patient to give you their, their expectations of what they think happens. And when a patient says, well, you know, I just think I need some massage and it's going to sort it all out. And I say, well, that's probably not going to help it in the long run. Well, that's what I want. That's what I need. That's what I'm going to get. I'm like, well, I, I'll, I'm not going to do that. What I think you need to do is this instead. But I know it's probably going to have a very poor outcome because their expectations aren't being met. I'll try and turn them around. But there are some patients you just can't. That's important. Do you have you had the the situation where you've had the conversation with the patient? It's like, look, I think I don't think that I'm gonna the right fit, or you know, this is yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I have got a certain unique personality, obviously, that comes across and doesn't to get on with every patient I see. And there are some patients through the history, through the exam, you can just see you're not connecting. You know, you're trying to make a few jokes and you're getting the old blank stares back with the eye rolls and you're, you're trying to get that rapport building is barrier, nothing, nothing, nothing. And so nowadays I'll say to patients, when I get that feeling, I'm like, uh, nothing personal. I'm just getting this impression that you're not quite enjoying being here or it's not, you know, you know, you're not quite reacting the way I'd expect you to. Is everything okay? Uh, and if they say they're not happy or anything, I say, well, would you like to see another one of my colleagues? We work in a team. We've got somebody else. So I think, you know, it would be much better for your particular condition. And yeah, I think that's important. It's finding the right therapist for the right patient as well. Hugely important to outcome. I love it. I, I think that's a great way to end because I could, I could just, I could hear you rant all day, Adam. I love my <laughs> bias confirmation is so strong right now. It feels so good. Hey. Uh, say something that I disagree with. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. So for all the, all the listeners that, uh, American football sucks. Fuck off. Okay. <laughs> We're done. No, We're done you, you, American football, the, the clues in the name, you don't fucking touch it with your feet. It's called football. I can't proper football it. like we play over here. Yeah. I can't defend the name. I, I played American football in college. It, it's my, it was my life for like half of my existence and I can't defend the name. I don't understand it. American called it American. Handy. <laughs> How about Gridiron? <laughs> Gridiron's a tough name. I like that. Yeah, Gridiron. Yes, okay, we can do that. But so okay. for all all the people listening, where can they find out more about you, about your courses, about your content, your podcast, all the stuff that you do? 
Uh, well, mate, everywhere on social media. I'm uh, I'm on most of the main channels. So I'm on Twitter at Adam Eakins. I'm on Facebook as well. I've got a personal account, um, uh, Adam Eakins, on there as well as my sports physio page there. Uh, I've got my website, my blog site, which has got all my recent blogs, guest blogs on there and courses. That's www.sports.physio. And then obviously I do the podcast, the NAF podcast with Eric Mira, uh, which is what I'm doing immediately after this one. And then uh, he's part of the PT network. So if you go over to the sciencept.com, uh, you'll find the podcast there. And we're on iTunes and I think a few of the other platforms as well. I'm not quite sure about that. Eric deals with all that sort of stuff. Awesome. And tell Eric to do a podcast with us. I've, I've, I've pinged yeah. him. Podcast, yeah. yeah. I've pinged him. And then I had with Scott Morrison has done a podcast with us and I told Scott to tell him and now I'm telling you to tell him. So that's gotta be enough, okay. enough push. Okay. Uh, I'll try and push him again. <laughs> okay. And Adam, so for everyone, Adam's uh, webinar for clinical athletes is going to be on November 9th, where he's going to talk about what we've talked about, but in much, in, in much greater detail, it'd be something that a reference that you can go back to and, and watch and listen to and, um, if you can't make the live date, so if November 9th, you got something to do, don't fret because everybody's going to get the recording who registers. So thanks again, Adam. I had a lot of fun. It was an awesome conversation uh, and hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah. Cheers, Quinn. Likewise. Right. Thanks, everyone.